As you're turning your Bibles to Psalm 83, and if you're not used to using a Bible, the Black Pew Bibles and the seats around you, you can find Psalm 83 on page 461 in those Black Pew Bibles. And as you're doing so, I would like you to take a moment now before we read this psalm to reflect on your prayer life and the kind of prayers that you pray, the things that you ask God for. And as you're thinking through, maybe you have a prayer ritual, which is a great idea, by the way, or you can think about what you prayed this morning as you woke up or before you went to bed last night. Have you ever prayed the following? Oh my God, would you bring your judgment down on these people like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, like fire consuming a forest as the flame sets mountains ablaze. Pursue them with your tempest, your terrifying hurricane. Fill them with shame. It might seem funny to ask a question, have you prayed a prayer like that? For many of us, I would assume that prayers of judgment or prayers of cursing seem off, odd, not the typical repertoire in your prayer routines. Some Christians, as I've argued in previous sermons when we've covered psalms like this, have in fact stated emphatically that we should not pray like that ever. And if you would like a further treatment on that conversation, go back to the sermon archive when we discussed Psalm 58. I will argue yet again that I do believe that Psalm 83 is a prayer that you too can pray. So instead of making all of the pro and con arguments for that like I've done before, I would like to teach you what Psalm 83 says and what I believe Psalm 83 instructs for you to pray. To put it another way, I believe that you don't have to choose between praying for God's judgment or praying for the salvation of the lost or an enemy of God. You don't have to make that choice. Psalm 83 gives us, I think, the helpful Holy Spirit-inspired motivation and even the words to say so that you will know how to pray for your enemies. Before I read the text, let me tell you what I believe Psalm 83 is saying in one simple sentence. Psalm 83 is a prayer asking for God's enemies to know God's glory according to God's will. The psalm's broken into two parts. You're going to notice a transition from verses 1 to 8 where God's enemies are discussed very clearly. So verses 1 to 8, as I'm about to read it, it's going to be a prayer for God's enemies and here's who they are. And then the rest of the psalm, verses 9 to 18, is the second half, and it will answer those final two elements. The specific thing that is being prayed for, which I believe could be summarized, that he wants, Asaph that is, he wants God's enemies to know God's glory, but he's doing it, if you read between the lines and pay careful attention, in accordance with the will of God. So one more time, Psalm 83 is a prayer asking for God's enemies 
to know God's glory and in accordance to God's will. Let's read the text of Scripture together. Psalm 83, starting in verse 1, a song, a psalm of Asaph. O God, do not keep silence, do not hold your peace or be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they conspire with one accord against you. They make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gebal and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre, Asher also has joined them. They are the strong arm of the children of Lot, Selah. Do to them as you did to Midian, as to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became dung for the ground, make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, let us take possession for ourselves of the pastures of God. O oh my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, as fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountains ablaze, so may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Fill their faces with shame, that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the Most High over all the earth. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, indeed, even for Psalm 83. I hope that several of you will sincerely believe that. Every single word of God is profitable for our instruction and useful for us to put into practice. I do not take the view, as I've argued in previous sermons, that the imprecatory psalms, and that's the fancy Latin word for cursed psalms, psalms with cursing in them, that's this psalm. Psalm 83 is a prayer asking for God to curse and judge the nations that are listed. So if we were to turn the big idea into a big takeaway, it would be this. We too should pray for God's enemies to know God's glory according to God's will. And I'd like to unpack this sentence in those three parts. First, we too should pray for God's enemies. We should We've been commanded to. Let's just first, though, before moving on and assume we're all on the same page, identify the enemies. Who are the enemies of Psalm 83? And then, if we're to pray for our enemies, who are our enemies? Well, the answer to this is very clear and deep. First, the clarity. The enemies that are listed here are in verses 5 to 8. For they conspire with one accord against you. They make a covenant. And I believe that the best explanation for the occasion of this psalm is not a specific historical event, although 2 Chronicles chapter 20 does have some good votes for it. However, there is not a single instance in the entire Old Testament where all of these nations made a covenant together. 
I believe what is happening here is starting from the east and working to the north and then over to the west and then down to the south. The list is a geographical circle saying the enemies all around Israel are working and conspiring and trying to eliminate us. Did you see that in verse 4? They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. They would like if they could, to get rid of Israel so that they would never be remembered again. So the enemies here are cousins of the nation of Israel. You should notice in verse 6, Edom comes from Esau. Ishmaelites come from Ishmael. Moab and the Hagrites. All of these early lists of nations come from close family ties to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But as you go further out, you start to see Philistia and the inhabitants of Tyre. And then this one is actually a very strange translation choice. Asher is the Hebrew word for Assyria. So if you'd like to, you don't have to, just cross out Asher because that's not an English word. And just write for yourselves Assyria. And notice the language there. Even Assyria has joined all of these people. And I think this is a poetic way of just trying to say, there are enemies all around us, and there are enemies that will work together for the common purpose of putting to an end the people of Israel. Meaning people that typically would not work together, they have a reason to work together, and it's the reason of getting rid of God's people. So that's the specific kind of historical uh, context of this passage. I mentioned that it's clear, hopefully, Verses 6 to 8 is clear. These are the surrounding geographical nations all around Israel. And if you've read your Old Testament Bible, uh, each of them at different points, one time or another, do try and take out Israel. And at times, some of them even conspire together. So, this question, who are the enemies, is actually quite deep and profound. On the surface, it's obvious. It's these nations. But I think it's more than just the physical rulers and nations. Verse 2 says, For behold, your enemies, and the word enemy is the same root word that we have for Genesis 3.15's use of enmity. Furthermore, look at verse 2, the way they hate you and they have raised their heads. The head of one who has enmity toward God's people. They lay Crafty plans. And the first time you hear the word crafty in the Bible is to describe the serpent in the garden in Genesis 3.1. Enmity, head, crafty. Hmm, you should be reading. Perhaps since this psalm comes immediately after Psalm 82, a psalm about the spiritual angels in heaven rebelling against God and going and empowering rulers of the earth to do their worst on the people of God. Psalm 83 is giving you subtle hints that ultimately God's enemy is that great deceiver, the devil, the serpent. He's the one who is at enmity with God's plan and his plan being through a people, through the seed of a woman, there would come a nation and through that nation, God would bring salvation and blessing and crush all evil on its head. They will no longer raise their heads according to the promise in Genesis 3.15. So who are the enemies? Well, they're humans. They're rulers of nations, but they are those that are filled with the lies and the deception and the false idolatry and worship 
of the pagan gods and they have rejected the creator God for created things and they are filled with none other than Satan's spirit. That's what I believe the answer is to who are these enemies. So praying for the enemies today. God's enemies, not your enemies alone. I believe that when we read Matthew chapter 5 and Jesus commands us, you've heard that it is said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. They're not talking about, and Jesus is not talking about, those that make your life slightly less comfortable in America. We're talking about those that are persecuting the church of God. So the direct one-to-one application of our text as we answer, who should we be praying for that are God's enemies? Well, it's not just your personal vendetta. Somebody that might have slighted you or cut you off in the road. Pray down curses, Psalm 83. Yes, I'm equipped for my road rage. No, 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 no. We're talking about persecution against the church that is filled with the crafty lies of Satan that wants to put to put to death and and rid the earth of those who name the name of Jesus. I hope that you have ears to hear and that you are discerning enough to realize that there are these enemies all over and we are surrounded in a very similar sort of way. The internet is filled with God's enemies that speak lies about the truth of God's word. Politicians, I'm not naming specific names, but Plenty of them speak lies that directly contradict the truth of God's word about what it means to be a man or a woman or what marriage means. And they are deliberately conspiring together and working to undermine the foundational establishment of God's good created order. There are many, many examples like this and more. And brothers and sisters, we as believers of the Lord Jesus should obey Jesus and pray for these enemies. How do we do that? First, you must know the Lord Jesus Christ in a saving way to be able to pray against God's enemies. The only way for you to be able to pray this way and use Psalm 83 is when you have been so aligned in mind and heart and union with the purposes of God and you've submitted yourself to his ways that you become one of God's treasured people. Do you see that in our text? Look at verse, um, verse four, three. They lay crafty plans against your people, your people, and they consult together against your treasured ones. Several of you just need to be reminded this morning, by the way, that God's love for his people is so immense that he would call them his treasured possession, like a husband loving his wife. The picture here is that if my wife were to be attacked by somebody on the side of the street or a neighbor gets a grudge against us and goes after my wife, if I sit back like this, arms folded, passively watching, I am a horrible husband. And God the Father, the mighty sovereign king who rules over heaven and earth, he sees his children, he sees his bride, and he has something to say about it, something that he's going to do about it. He cares, and on the basis of that, this is the reason that they're praying. So I think some of you need to just ask the first and simple question, how am I going to pray for my enemies? Well, if they are God's enemies... 
That's the way to pray for them. And the only way they'll be God's enemies is if God's enemies are those that are opposed to the Christian church, which means you've got to be a part of the church. You've got to repent and believe. You have to be a Christian who's been saved from your sins. Otherwise, you are God's enemy. What I would say is that we need to first and foremost establish that the Bible makes clear that all of those who have rejected God as king and ruler and Lord, who decides, I know what's good and bad just all on my own, and I will be king and ruler. I will be the master and captain of my life. Anyone that has that disposition is at enmity with God. They are filled with the most fundamental lie of Satan. And therefore, we must repent of this. And put our hope and our trust fully in the saving work of Jesus to forgive us of our sins and make us friends with God through the finished work of Christ on the cross. Is that you today? This is the only way you can pray for God's enemies is if God's enemies are your enemies. And you shouldn't assume that unless you know with great clear conscience you have repented of your sin. You have been baptized into a local church and you are a covenant member of God's body. And when that is you, you can take great, great confidence in those beautiful words in the book of Acts when Jesus himself, the ascended, resurrected Jesus, appears from heaven and tells Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? Oh, I pray that many of you will let that truth sink deep down into your heart. That the persecution of the local church, whether in the Old Covenant era or in the New Testament era, is a persecution of God. The people of God and the person of God are so united that there is a sense to which Jesus himself will look at Saul in the face and say, you are not just persecuting a group of believers You are persecuting me. He identifies himself with you, sinner. May that truth and that reality lead you to submit to him and want to obey him. He is full of great justice and mercy. We don't have to choose between God's judgment or salvation. So step one, in order to pray, Psalm 83 is to align yourself with the purposes and will of God and repent of your sin and become a child, a friend, a bride of God. Then, and only then, will you be able to pray for God's enemies. Secondly, notice that the purpose and the reason, the the way in which we're going to pray for God's enemies is so that they will know God's glory. They will know the name of God and everything that God's name stands for. This comes very directly from the very last few verses. Please turn your attention down to verses 15 to 18. So may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Fill their faces with shame. And that's where I paused when I opened the sermon. Because I wanted some of you to know that this is not just get them. Go get him. It's a prayer that says, God, may they behold your true wonder and glory so that they may seek your name. This is a prayer almost of salvation, you could say. God, save them. 
And if they're not going to repent, then judge them because they are coming after us and trying to wipe us out. This is what I mean by we don't have to choose. You can just pray this general idea. God, make your name great in the nations, in the world, in this individual's life. For those that are in the civil government of the United States and are opposed to the Christian message of the Bible, make your name great to them. And if that means judgment and consequences for their sin, then so be it. Or if it means salvation, then praise God. Or maybe we could just sum it this way. When asked, teach us to pray, Lord Jesus. Father, hallowed be your name. Is that your prayer? Is that the bottom basis? Is that the foundation for every prayer that you ever pray? Whether a prayer for God, I don't know what would be best, but here's what I do know. You are a God of righteousness and justice, and these people are getting away with persecution of your children. Bring down the consequences they they rightly deserve, or you just pray. May they turn from their sins and repent fully and put their hope and their trust in the one true God who reigns over heaven and earth. Either way, God, may your name be praised. The basic application for this is the reason for which we should be motivated to pray for our enemies is so that our enemies will know what we have, by God's grace, come to know, which is there is a king of kings, and a lord of lords who is above all. And we want all of the earth, every knee bow and every tongue confess that there is a beautiful, wonderful savior who would forgive them of all of their sins. But that if they reject that, then there is no hope apart from him. There is only salvation found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if they reject Jesus, then give them what they deserve. Hand them over to the consequences of their sin, which is death. Embassy Church, as you think through the motivation of this prayer, I want you to also think very carefully about the motivation for our obligation as Christians here in this church to rightly exercise the bringing in of new members and the removing of those who are in unrepentant rebellion against God. The reason I say this is because if you carefully read 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you again don't have to choose. You don't have to choose to think that church discipline or the removal of a church member is some kind of harsh disobedience of Jesus' command, judge not lest ye be judged. You shouldn't be judging people. That's not what church discipline is. 1 Corinthians 5 carefully states that we remove immoral, clearly rebellious members of the church. The specific command is expel the the immoral brother from your midst so that their soul would be saved. God's just judgment of handing a church member over to Satan may very well be the very thing that leads to their salvation. But at the end of the day, God, glorify your name. Your name is being taken on by a Christian. Your name is being born. This is, by the way, the third commandment. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. 
When a Jewish person in the Old Covenant or a New Covenant Christian takes on the name of Jesus, and in our ritual, it would be through the practice of baptism, in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit, we take on the name of God to our lives, and we say, I submit to King Jesus. And then if you go day after day after day, and you don't submit to King Jesus repeatedly, stubbornly, wantonly, high-handedly, I don't care then you can't be calling yourself a Christian. Therefore, we exercise church discipline. And we do this not because we're better than you or because we're superior or higher mighty. We do it because of the name of Jesus Christ. You can't be saying, I love Jesus, and then hate him with your actions. Or to put it another way, Romans chapter 12 is a beautiful summary of everything that we're seeing here in this text. In Romans 12, it says, we should be filled with abundant love. We should love one another earnestly from a pure and sincere heart. We should be hospitable to one another. We should forgive one another. When those of you in this room are weeping, we should weep with you. When you have great news that there's a new baby that's coming and you've been engaged and you've been married, we should celebrate with these great, wonderful gifts from God. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. A beautiful community of the new covenant era is a church that loves one another sincerely. And then in that same text, just moments later, Romans chapter 12 says, and do not repay evil for evil. Vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. Psalm 83 is teaching you how to obey Romans chapter 12. We don't have to choose between loving people and wanting them saved and God rightly giving vindication for his name through just judgment. If you follow the flow of scripture, I think you will see this all over the place. And therefore, I encourage you to pray Psalm 83 for God's enemies, to know God's glory, the beauty and the wonder and the amazement of his name. Hallowed be your name. And do so, third and finally, in accordance with the will of God. Jesus didn't just stop there, did he? Hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come and may your will be done. This is a prayer for God's enemies to know God's glory and in accordance with God's will. Meaning this, the way that they pray here in Psalm 83 and all of the people that have prayed Psalm 83 ever since for thousands of years, from verses 9 to 18, I would summarize it as praying in accordance with the will of God for these reasons. First, look at verses 9 to 12. Notice the first prayer request is, God, do to them as you did in the past to Midian. And then to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon. Now, some of you might be like, no idea what God did then. And this would be why this afternoon you should be reading Judges chapter 4 to Judges chapter 8. So jot that down. I don't know my Bible very well. That's okay. You have a whole lifetime. So saturate yourself in the scriptures so that when you get to a verse like this, you're not like, I have no idea what it's talking about. It'll be more helpful to apply this sermon if you understand Judges 4 to 8. In that passage, in brief summary, you have two stories, and they're both referenced in verse 9. Midian was when the Midianites, for seven years, was terrorizing God's people. And God brought great salvation through the judge, the ruler that he raised up named Gideon. And then there was Sisera and Jabin, who ruled over the nation of Israel for 20 years. We're not talking about just a tough day. We're talking about decades 
of ruling over from these satanic forces that want to wipe out God's people. And Sisera and Jabin, Sisera is the general and Jabin is the king, and they were defeated soundly through the prophetess, Deborah, who was raised up by God. And an army of people came in and crushed them at the river Kishon that's referenced in verse 9. And for those of you that are wondering, there's also that little end climactic point where this general, Sisera, was escaping on foot from the battle after they had been soundly defeated at the river Kishon. And he went into a tent and Jael said, oh, come into the tent. And she fed him, took care of him, gave him a place to sleep. I'm really thirsty. And she gave him some milk. And then as he fell asleep, sound asleep, she took a peg, a tent peg, a post and a hammer, and then crushed his head. It's in the Bible. It's a true story. That's what's being referenced here. If you don't think that the psalmist is kind of uh, filled with zeal, well then read Judges and realize what's being asked here. Do to them as you did to Midian when Gideon and all of those 300 soldiers that whittled down from 22,000 to 300 defeated Midianites. Or do what you did to Sisera when you put a temple, a, a post through his temple and crushed his head. And at that point, I just wondered, with the subtle reference to a crafty enemy of God who's raising their head as verse 2 and 3 make clear, these crafty plans against your people will have the head crushed like was promised in Genesis 3.15. Here's the simple takeaway. Verses 9 to 12 is telling you about a series of victories that God's people had over God's enemies. And the psalmist is saying, do it again. Fulfill your covenant promises. Do it again. Now, the practical takeaway for you is if God did not promise or God did not do it in the past, then there's a good chance you're asking for something that's not according to his will. This psalmist is doing neither. He is on the basis of the promises of God and on the account of the history of God, he is praying for God to do what he's done in the past. And that's the way I believe you and I should pray. Pray for God's enemies, that they will know the glory of God, whether it's through their salvation or through their judgment. And do it like you've done so many times in the past. He could have picked any stories, he picked these and so I want to encourage you to pray this way, pray in this manner, and I want you to realize that the reason why you and I have the privilege to pray this way, the reason why we can become friends of God, is because the promise made in Genesis 3.15 has come through the serpent crusher, Jesus Christ. And here's my little thread from the beginning of the Bible to the end. Here it goes. Genesis 3.15, after the first sin that occurred on the planet, God said, I will put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And as we read the story of Genesis, we find that the seed of the serpent will not just be spiritual powers, but they will be manifested through nations and kings and rulers. That's what Genesis 10 and 11 is all about. But then comes Genesis 12, 1 through 3. God chose one of those nations, Abraham. And said, Abraham, through you, all of these nations are going to receive the blessing and favor of God. But if they curse you, I will curse them. And if they bless you, I will bless them. 
but it will be through you, through your seed, through the seed of this woman and the lineage that goes from Eve all the way down through Noah, all the way down to Shem, leads to Abraham. And from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we have the chosen line. And it is through this line that the judges in Judges 4 to 8 have the promise of God from Abraham. If they curse us, then God will curse them. And if they bless us, then God will bless them. And time and time again, he would, even though they were sinful, he would keep his promise. And he would bring, the word is judges in our English, but you could also translate it saviors. In the past, he brought saviors to get his people out of the mess that they created from their own sin. And then, He rescued them, and then they would obey, and then they would do it all over again, and do it all over again. That's not just Judges 4 to 8. That's the whole book. But Psalm 2 tells us that when David was on his throne, as was read earlier in the service, the nations will continue to rage and conspire and uproar and plot in vain because they will not have victory over the Lord and his anointed servant. Psalm 2 states explicitly that the Lord in heaven laughs at the plans and the schemes of the wicked and that they should take account. Take notice, nations of the world, any of you that are opposed to the one true ruler, King David in the Old Testament. But now, today, if we fast forward to the second scripture reading, Acts chapter 4, Those early Christians understood that the nations conspiring and plotting together was none other than the Jewish elite and the Roman rulers working together. Pontius Pilate and King Herod conspired together. People that typically don't work together will find ways to work together when they want to put to death the people of God and the chosen servant of God. And there in that room, a group of early Christians said, Psalm 2 has been fulfilled. The nations... The Jews and the Gentiles worked together to kill Jesus. But oh, did they know that the sovereign Lord was accomplishing his purposes because he has chosen that on his holy hill, he would have a son, the son whom he has chosen, who would come from him, who would have all of his power, all of his authority. And this son would be crushed to death on a cross and then vindicated and raised to new life through the resurrection power that happened on that first Easter Sunday. And then he did not just stay alive and walk around. He ascended into heaven and he is now king of all kings and lord of all lords. And he pours out his Holy Spirit to give a group of minorities, a small, weak kind of people. Think 300 soldiers against thousands in the story of Gideon. The least and the unlikely, the small little seed, it will become the great power that rules over all of the earth through the bended knee to Jesus Christ. And this is why in Stephen's prayer, He sounds much like Jesus in Acts chapter 7. The first persecuted prayer sounded like this. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, but do not hold these sins against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Sounds a lot like that prayer Jesus prayed, but he hung on the cross. Father, forgive these enemies of mine. They do not know what they're doing. You don't have to choose between judgment and salvation. God brought both on the cross. Judgment was being paid and salvation was being offered. And now anybody who opposes the Lord Jesus Christ, it is right and fitting for you to pray like those under the altar in Revelation chapter 6. Bring vengeance to your name. Come, Lord Jesus, come. I believe with all my heart 
Psalm 83 is a psalm that instructs us, is useful and profitable for us to pray for our enemies, to know God's glory, and according to the will of God, the will of God that's been revealed in the past and through his promises. I would encourage you to pray appropriately as the Lord leads. Let's pray together now. Ah, sovereign Lord, holy heavenly Father, we pray now, and we do so only because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. We pray knowing that we too were once enemies of your cross. We too have been proud and boastful, and we have not willingly and voluntarily bended our knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Many of us in our own sin have demonstrated by the ways that we have rebelled against you, not loving you with all of our heart, not giving thanks to you for every good gift that we've received, and beyond that, exchanging the reality of the creator God for created things, fashioning idols with our hands and in our hearts. So we want to pray, God, that if there's anyone here today and they don't understand the message of Jesus, where they've never bowed their knee, I pray that they would do so today. I pray that your spirit would give them the conviction of their sin and the judgment of your plan of salvation that is coming soon and that they would, as Psalm 2 said, kiss the Son, pay honor to the Son, Jesus Christ, the one true anointed one, the one that fulfilled Psalm 2 and Psalm 83. We thank you, Lord, that you have made your name known and all your ways in heaven here on the earth through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we want to pray that we would be rightly in tune with your word and its wisdom and learn how to pray appropriately and that we would not just pray for personal uh, vendettas and, and vengeances, but we would pray rightly and appropriately for the persecuted church and pray for the enemies of God that are conspiring to put an end to the church or its truth. And we ask that we would have great boldness in doing so. We, we need it. We desperately need your strength and courage. We pray this in Jesus' name now. Amen.